Get ready for this special episode as we bring you a live event recorded at the YWCA in downtown Minneapolis, featuring Maya Moore Irons and Jonathan Irons. Their new book, Love and Justice, is out now, so make sure to get a copy of their new book and prepare to be inspired and gain new insights into redefining success in the justice system. You're listening to Conversations with Shanta, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Shonda. My name is Devonna Rucker. I work here at the YWCA. I lead one of our girls' empowerment programs here, and this is my mother-in-law. All right. It's just, it's just a pleasure, and I'm so glad to have you here, Maya and, and Jonathan. And Maya, this is your home. You've been here, one of, one of us, I would say, with the links, and have made a remarkable difference in our city. And um, what I'm so proud of every time I'm out working on criminal justice reform is talking about how the links really set the path forward for how sports interact with what's happening in criminal justice reform. And you are very much part of setting that off. So thank you for that. Mm, Thank you so much. Yeah. So today on Conversations with Shonda, we're just going to talk and I've made it mostly through the book, which I have liked more than what I thought I would. And I wish I had like one more hour because that's probably what it would take for me to actually complete the book. So I want to talk about that. And if if I could just sort of thread um, that, that conversation a little bit. And what I like the most about it is the back and forth, the way that you all did the chapters. While Maya, I get a sense of who you are and feel like we're like cousins or something because you've been so public and I've, I've just owned part of you as part of me. Jonathan, I got introduced to you through her and I'm like, what in the world is happening, right? Like many people across the country maybe thought. And I have to tell you, as I read that book, I understood it 100,000%. But before we go into the story more deeply, I would love for you to just share a little bit about your grandmother. Uh, My grandmother was an amazing woman and she is why I, I have mad respect for all women in this world. Like she's, she was, she was everything to me. She even, she even was a father figure to me. She, she, she raised me, she took care of me, she disciplined me. When I got out of line, she tanned my hat. But when I did when I did well, she celebrated me. I remember, I won this, I won this, and she had she had um, very bad knees because you ever you, if if you remember the movie called Help, she was one of those ladies that was cleaning houses back in the day when she was younger. Um, but I had won this art award and they hung it up in the mall and she, as much pain as she was in, <clears throat> as much pain as she, she was in, she she walked up to that mall hobbled down that hallway just to see my picture. And when she saw it, she like celebrated. Like she was so good at celebrating me. When I, when I, when I got locked up, you know, she, 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 she grieved. But she would always tell me like, get in the Bible, read, read a proverb and the Psalms a day. Like you're gonna be all right, you're gonna make it through this. God gonna take care of you. Lean on him, get in your Bible. And every time I call her, phone calls were expensive. Like prison calls were way too high. But every time I would call her, she would ask me, are you in your Bible? Are you, are you, are you being the best that you can? And I would be like, yes, ma'am. So that's, that's good. And, and 
her voice would stable, stable me and comfort me in that dungeon of a place. She was a mighty woman. Yeah, I felt her might and legacy through the pages of your chapter and your voice, right? It's your voice. Um, I was also struck by when you were um, a child in school. You know, I've worked in lots of spaces, including around the education system, and you had encounters in school that had you realize things about your life that you didn't know. And I think there's so many of us like that, where we feel like our life is, is good, right? You got a loving grandparent, you got people around you, and then you get to school and you're like, wait, they see me this way? And I always used to say, growing up on the north side of Minneapolis, like my experience was so different than how people would describe the people that live there in the community. And can you just share sort of what and how the school either nurtured you or, or didn't nurture you in, in your development? I would say I had probably one teacher, and I know this because I have, you know, she, she recently reached out and she, she would draw me in and encourage me, and, I, and I, have, I have memories that have come back to me as a result of it. I, it was one teacher that looked out for me, but the other ones, like, they, they, they didn't like me. I had too much energy. They didn't know what to do with me. They didn't have patience for me. Um, <clears throat> My, we were poor, so we heated the house with a wood-burning stove. So I would come to school smelling like smoke. A teacher put an air freshener up under my desk because I smelled like smoke. I didn't smell well. And like, that caused other kids to want to make fun of me and all that. There. So, I, you know, in our household, we fought. Like, you, you say something to one of us, you're going to get in the mouth. And I would get in trouble about that. But, I, you know, I, I, uh, like I, didn't, I didn't really like school. You know, I, I, the teachers didn't reach out to me. They, they didn't inspire me, they didn't pull me in, they didn't figure out what, what my motivation was, except for that one, she was a good teacher. But I didn't get, I didn't get around her long. I had her from like the kindergarten to like third grade, and then they took me off, and then after I left her classroom, they just continued to just throw me to the side and, and treat me like I, I was less than. And so the, the incident that landed you in prison, can you share what happened? Yeah, or, or how you got there, because we know you didn't do it, but like what, what led you, what led them to finding you guilty? Well, I was, I was in this predominantly white neighborhood uh, and my grandmother had warned me. She said, don't you, don't you stay in that, that, don't you go in that town, don't go over there. They don't, they don't like our kind over there. And I didn't listen. I had friends over there, kids I went to school with, not knowing that their parents didn't like people of color. Uh, and neither did the police. The police really didn't like people of color. So I was in this neighborhood. I was, you know, I was trying to hang out with friends. It was a school night. And someone's house got broken into, a guy named Stanley Stoller. And his house was broken into and he was shot. And I was in the neighborhood and I had a gun on me. But the gun was the totally different type of gun. And the reason why I had the gun is because a guy had robbed me because I had been selling weed. And I grabbed, I, I wrestled this gun away from this guy and, and basically defended myself. I didn't shoot him, but I, I got it. And I, it was, to me, it was like a trophy of me, of me surviving. And I was just a young, dumb kid. Like, look, I would tell people, like, look, I, I survived the robbery. The gun didn't even work. It was jammed up. It was just, it was just bad. And so I, 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 was, I was carrying it around and so they, they said, okay, you're in this neighborhood, you got a gun, you black, like, you're going down. But 
they ignored evidence that there were other black people in their neighborhood and there were other burglaries and they just zeroed in on me to the point where they ignored every piece of evidence that pointed to someone else, even to the point of hiding evidence. Like we found evidence of, uh, evidence of fingerprints that pointed to someone else, they hid that. They coached witnesses, uh, they coached the eyewitness. Uh, it was just, there's just a, a, a plethora of problems that happened with this case. And they, they, uh, they interrogated me and treated me as an adult, didn't even reach out to my grandmother which by law and policy, they're supposed to do that or reach out to a guardian. But they just treated me like I was an adult from the, from the beginning. And how many years did you ultimately serve? 23 and a half. From age 16 to, what thing was it, 40? Yeah, 40. And so you went in at 16 as a child into adult prison? Yeah, I had to fight grown men. I heard you did really well in court of what you said in that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, my, growing up in my household, you know, my uncle, my uncle was a boxer. And like you in the household with 10, 15, 20 people, you know, it's bound to fight. You know, and, and, you know people teasing you and you wrestling and playing. And I, it, it's so crazy how that chaos kept me safe and protected me in an environment that was like just overrun with, with chaos and drama and problems. Um, but I wasn't going around just beating people up for no reason. It's usually either you mess with one of my friends or you were trying to attack me or taking advantage of somebody. Like, I just, like I got to a point where I was just sick of it. I'm like, I'm tired of people seeing people getting taken advantage of, getting raped, just getting dogged out. Even, even, even legally, when I learned the law, I started to fight against the, uh, the prison system. I would file IRRs and complaints to get ice and just different things that we would need because I was tired of it. And I said, like, this, this isn't, this isn't working. You're going to stop this. Like, I was advocating for that. It's just, and that's what I use my strength for. Yeah. So, Maya, you come into the picture and you got um, introduced to Jonathan through how? So, when Jonathan was around 19 years old, when he was thrown into the fire, um, my great uncle, Hugh Flowers, had been involved in prison ministry for a long, long time through a choir program. And so my great uncle, Hugh, who we call Papa, met Jonathan um, through that program, saw uh, potential in him, challenged him to be a leader, and really just became a mentor to Jonathan, um, and then eventually like a father to Jonathan. So my great uncle introduced some of his family, which ended up including me, to Jonathan's story, and then my godparents, Sherry and Reggie, um, met Jonathan and started to care about him and his story and wanting to help him in any way that they could, started visiting him every weekend. And so at that point, I was um, about to go off to Yukon, and so I went to high school in Georgia. And so I would go back to Missouri to visit my godparents, and when I visited them that time, they invited me to go see him because that's what they did every weekend. And so I was just moving in the flow of what my family was already doing by seeing Jonathan and just being moved to want to help somehow. Um, and so that's how I met him. And I just went into the prison with my godparents and sat across the table from him, looked him in his eye and just had a conversation, wanted to hear about his life and how he was doing. And we were just, we were just kicking it. Like it was, it was a conversation just like with a family member and that's how our friendship began.
throughout the book, what I was struck with is your relationship with, with God and faith. And I realized um, very quickly that it was something that you both had in common. So just the thread, the thread of faith and, you know, leadership can be lonely in all ways. And so here you are young, you're going off, you know, you end up being a leader on the team. You're a leader in your space, you're a leader, you're isolated, you're isolated, and you guys are both leaning heavily on family and faith. Was that, um, in fact, the, the thread that really helped sort of be foundational in your relationship throughout the years? Absolutely. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about faith, um, I think a helpful way to talk about it as well is the lens that you see life. Um, what do you believe is true? That's kind of what faith is. What do you trust? What do you depend on to see life? Um, and for that, it's a, it's a relationship with our creator and that how we have been formed and influenced and taught about who he is impacts how we live. And so I think both Jonathan and I, having been the beneficiary of people of faith who loved us well, has informed how we moved through our circumstances and, and, and hardships. And so um, we recognize that in each other. Um, I think first and foremost, how we see the world is people are valuable mm -hmm. and everybody has dignity and worth and a reason for being here. Mm -hmm. And so if you start there, life can happen. And so that's where we started, of just seeing each other and valuing each other and wanting to encourage each other and just be good friends. And when things get hard, understanding we have such a limited perspective and there's so much more happening and to, and to trust that the one who made us is gonna stay with us and be with us. Um, you know, that's what we try to articulate in the book is not necessarily a religious going through the motions, but a relationship that sustains through the hard. So, cause that's what our life has been. And so that's what we try to let people inside of in some very raw and real ways. So um, it's absolutely what, what binds us together and, and, and gives us our strength and our joy. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add to that? I, I, I would, if I, would, if I could add anything to that, I would definitely say like our, our, our trust and reliance on God in those dark times is basically like the thread that has stitched us together <clears throat> and given us the ability to resist the urge to like give up when it gets hard. Because you have a tendency to, to like, man, why? You get to a point where you keep running into problem after problem after problem. Like, man, man, why me? Why does this keep happening? And like, you just, you just can't give in to that. And, and there's so many things about, 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 about God and like what, what Christ has done for us that we connect, connect on that just, that just keeps us anchored in that storm. Because you, you, you can't stop a storm from coming. Like, we just can't do it. But, but you can decide what you do in that storm. You can decide to give in to the storm, or you can find shelter, or you can hold on to something, or you can find an anchor. And that's what it is to us. Mm -hmm. Maya, so you guys are, are coming, and, and then the Innocence Project got involved um, with your case, Jonathan. Maya, can you share sort of how that got involved and maybe how you got involved with that? Yes, yeah, so I think along, um, along this journey, Jonathan, first of all, 
early on in his wrongful conviction, got inspired to teach himself law. So it's just an incredible, I don't have time to brag on my husband, because I'll just be <laughs> bragging on him the whole time about what he's done, how he taught himself law, how he helped other guys get home because of the law and the help that he gave them while still fighting for his own case. I mean, just craziness um, of, of, of who he is in the best way. But he, you know, got to a point where he's like, I have to fight for myself. People had fallen away. His grandmother had passed away. And he didn't um, get a chance to really grieve that in, in, in a proper way. And so he was at his rock bottom. But he, you know, by the grace of God and people coming alongside of him, picked himself up and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn. I'm going to educate myself and fight for myself through this knowledge. Like he said, shifting that physical strength into a mental uh, persistence to, to figure out how to get himself home. And so we were just coming alongside Jonathan, being his hands and feet on the outside as he was guiding us of how to get uh, his, his case overturned. And so along the way, we would try to take advantage of resources that were available because again, um, earlier on, my godparents are middle-class folks, hardworking. Um, he's, he doesn't, he's not able to earn what he deserves to have with the work that he's doing. And so we're trying to take pro bono opportunities and, and nonprofit opportunities and the Innocence Project in, in the Midwest came in at some point. Um, but they, um, you know, for whatever reasons, didn't necessarily handle his case the best. Um, they helped us out a lot by actually digitizing all of his files. Um, and then there was another law firm that came in and we learned that there was a conflict of interest there and, and that wasn't moving forward. And so um, we definitely need nonprofits and pro bono help, but um, you gotta actually do the work. Um, but Jonathan's case was, it was very hard. I mean, they buried him. They buried him very deep. It wasn't a simple um, innocence to see by the way they meticulously buried him. But um, at the end of the day, there was a, an excellent for-profit law firm that we invested in that did an excellent job of representing him. But along the way, um, pro bono and nonprofit opportunities added to what we needed and got us a little bit closer and a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. I just want to shout out to Eli uh, Darris, who's in the room with us. We're live at the YWCA. Eli um, Justice Impacted was 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 in in there advocating, helping other guys get free while he was working on his own case. And we know that there are many that, um, even to your own narrative, right, that you shared with us, where there was one teacher and the rest of them didn't believe in you. And here you go, learning the law, reading the legal books, and helping other people. And you think about the amount of brilliance that is not being invested in in school and here is an example of why that should never happen. So I am, I am sorry on behalf of all the kids for that to continue to happen, but it also illustrates that when that investment happens, right, can you just imagine, right, what could have happened earlier? But Jonathan, you went from helping individuals in prison to get free from prison and then began to work on your own case but when was it for you that you decided there was a much bigger vision for you on working on the justice system overall? Was there a bigger vision for you? 
Yeah, I, I, I was reading a, uh, I was reading some case law. Like I, I had a habit of just, like I was, you call me a book nerd, bookworm. I was, and I, and I'll take that name with pride. Like you know, knowledge is power. I was reading this case by the Supreme Court, and I saw where prosecutors have immunity, and they could basically knowingly put an innocent person away in prison. They can put false witnesses on the stand. They can fabricate evidence and not be held accountable. And I saw that, and I was just like flabbergasted. And I'm like, what? This is in our legal books by the U.S. Supreme Court? I'm like, oh, man, this is crazy. So I went down a rabbit hole to figure out, okay, what, what, what's, what's being done about this? Is there anything? And then I saw like little shimmers as I was researching about conviction integrity units. And so I, I, I followed that thread through the books, and I continued to read and understand and like see the value and how they could balance out that problem with the, with the prosecutors. Because prosecutors are the most powerful person in the courtroom. And I, I studied that and I learned that and I was like, well, that's good. I can share information about that. I can share knowledge about that. That's my way of helping people, helping the system, making change. And I would, anybody who I could talk to, I was talking to professors, I was talking to the Innocence Project, I, was, I talked to Maya, um, uh, my people, my friends, talk about conviction integrity units, prosecutor reform, like all this stuff needs to happen. And, and, I, and, I, and I, in my mind, at first I was just like, man, what am I gonna do? I'm, just, I'm in prison, I, I, I don't have a voice. But then something in me said, no, 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 you have knowledge. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to share that and say something. Even if it's just a whisper and nobody can hear you, you say something, eventually somebody gonna say, what was that? And they're gonna come searching for you. And then you're gonna have the ability to say something. And so I, I, I imagine it was probably around 2015, 16, when I was like really solidified in my knowledge of the, of the legal system and understanding it and understanding the problems with it and, and like writing people in. They're like, man, you know what? You're absolutely right. They just gave me the confidence that like, like I'm, I'm, I'm in my calling. I don't know what to ask Nesmaya, but when did you know he was the one for you? <laughs> I want to know. My goodness. Because I can see it. I mean, I'm just want to know. <laughs> the moments. You know your chapters. Thank you for the question. <laughs> goodness. Um, yeah, so one of the favorite, one of my favorite parts of telling our love story that I think um, really hits at the heart of love is that our relationship was founded on years of friendship. So I think love is, is sweeter when you're like really, really good friends and you go through things and time and you really get to test your friendship um, because that's what lasts, that's what carries you through life is, is knowing how to be a good friend. I tell young people, I feel old right now saying that, I tell young people, um, when I get a chance, when I get their ear, it's like you're in high school or in middle school, I know the hormones are starting, all this thing, but just try to be a good friend. Like that's really what's gonna stabilize you is, you know, you like him, he like, you know, all the, all the, what stabilizes you is, am I being a good friend? Is this person being a good friend? 
Um, if, we, if we could actually cultivate better friendships in our, in our society, our world would be so much more beautiful. And so we try to talk about that. The, the majority, I think, of what you see in us is we're just really good friends. And, um, but obviously the, the intimate way we were walking and battling for um, each other, because I'd be living my life and I'm, I'm trying to trailblaze and do hard things in my world and he's you know, seeing me and encouraging me and I'm like, you got a lot, you got your own str struggles and battles, yet you're taking your emotional and mental energy to try to be there for me. Like, that's a good friend, that's an amazing friend. Like, fighting his way through um, the, the, the telephone lines and handling his, the, you know, the money that he fights so hard to get to, to, to spend time to talk to me and I'm in another country, in another time zone and just the way he, he fought for our, our relationship and our time. But there is a point in our friendship, about six years into our friendship and I guess you just can't, you couldn't contain it. You couldn't contain it. And, I mean. and he said, don't you, embarrassing me. I embarrass very easily and he loves to embarrass me. Um, he said a comment, uh, we were kind of joking around. We don't have to say, the, the, it's not about the what, okay. you know. And I, I immediately recognized, oh, he's flirting with me. And I said something. If you see something, say something. And I said something. And I said, excuse me, sir. Was that, were you flirting with me? And he said, yes, I was. <laughs> and so we were like, okay, what do we do now? And we had to, we had to just be honest because our, our love for each other had been growing just behind the scenes of just seeing each other's lives. We were just, we, 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 were, we grew in love. We rose in love with each other and so at that point um it was you know i think first about being honest and then second like okay how do we do this because this is crazy like this is not normal <laughs> at all my life your life in and of itself are very different and so we just again i think focused on continuing to be great friends but also acknowledging our love for each other and jonathan um years before that you wrote a letter to her mother. Did you know then, like, I just want to know, did you know then that you, was that the moment or was it the moment you flirted with her? Uh, I, that, I think I, 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 did I, I don't, it's so long ago. I'm trying to figure out what came first, the letter or the, or the, or the comment. The letter. Oh, the letter, yeah, yes. okay. That was back in 20, like, I, for me, year. For me, the moment for me was, I would probably say after, after she had she had a championship game, and she made time to talk to me. Like she always made time to talk to me, and she would show up. She would come see me. She she traveled across the ocean to come to Missouri to come see me in prison. I was in solitary confinement, and she came to see me while I was in prison. They had me. I was already in prison behind the fence, and you know they they had me shackled. Behind a glass, I'm like, okay, what am I gonna do? What, what, what I mean, I'm just like, it's just ridiculous. But she came to see me, and she wanted to come see me. She would write me letters, and I and I and just, I would know how busy she was because of her family and everything that was going on. And I was trying to be respectful of that, but she was like, no, call me. What's going on? Tell them to call me on this day. I'm sorry I missed this call. Tell them to call me on this day. And I would, you know, try to schedule and try to work with guys and. 
try to get to the phone line because it was like four phones for 72 people. Like that's, that was that was a, that was a job every day trying to hassle hassle and get through that. But she just and and I, and I can't definitively say like it was just like one moment because I I I, I I I had people in coming in and going out of my life like they would promise me things like I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that for you I'm gonna do that and all of a sudden I called didn't get an answer wouldn't get a letter wouldn't get a birthday card but she was consistent. And I, and that that's what anchored me to her and it's like like she she loved me for real she loved me like my grandma loved me yeah oh can't be mad at that kind of love can you <laughs> was there ever a moment that you felt like if you moved to the next step it would um, undermine the friendship um yeah because I just because one like I didn't want her to be angered to me like. Because I wanted her to find a good man out there, but I, I I had I had this notion in my heart, like if if I, if I treat her right and I treat her like like a like a good man is supposed to, like and just in conversation and just being friends with her, then the next guy that has a certain bar to go to, like she's just not gonna go for any any type of thing. So I, I want her to do that, but I also want her to find somebody. I didn't want her to be tied to me because I didn't know whether or not I was gonna come home. Like there was always that reality. And I would tell, I would hold it with an open hand. I say, I'm holding you with an open hand. If you find a guy before I come home, I am going to applaud you and celebrate and, and, and be respectful of that. Cause you deserve that. You out there, you out there winning, you doing big things and I'm here fighting for my life. And I may never go home, that's the reality. It's sad, but it's true. And you have to operate in reality. You can't just operate in an illusion world, especially when it comes to other people's hearts. And I just, I didn't want her to do that. I remember, when I, I first proposed to her, uh, she came up to see me. We were in this visitor room. We had a little table about this size and about a little bit below our knees. And it was people all in the visitor room. It was crowded. But it was one thing that was crazy about the visiting room is that when we were talking to each other, we wouldn't hear anything else that was going on in the room. And I got down on my knee, and she said, oh. I was like, what are you doing? I said, will you marry me? She said, oh. I said, but don't answer that question. She said, what? <laughs> I said, the reason why is because I don't know if I'm gonna go home. Let me, let me, let me come home first before you answer that question. Because I don't want you to be tired of me and trying to figure out how to make this work and I ain't got no hope in coming home. If this is my plight, then so be it. I'm still gonna serve the Lord. But if, if I do come home, you know, I want you to know that I want to marry you. I want to be with you. So I just want you to know my intentions. And she's, okay. She respected that. Oh, Maya, were you ready to marry him even if he stayed? This is so good. This is what the book is like. I'm telling you, this is what the book is like. Y'all got to buy this book. I'm telling you the yes, truth. you telling all the tea. <laughs> this is the book. Like, don't tell the good details in the book, but like, were you prepared to marry this man if he would if he didn't come? Maya, asking all the personal. I'm no, sorry, I, I didn't know I was gonna go this route, but it's so good. I wasn't gonna let her. Okay. Okay. I wasn't gonna let well, her. If I didn't come home, I wasn't well, gonna let her. At that point, we were already in too deep. Okay. You know, it's like we done lived all this life, fought, seen the the each other the beauty of each other's hearts the the hard stuff the good stuff so i was very um i'm i'm a very 
loyal, like committed person. I don't say yes to a lot of things, but the things that I say yes to, I'm like all in. So he was one of those yeses, but at the same time, like he said, it was such an uncharted, what's the right next step? Because our path, we're bla blazing this path. And so um, my intent, my heart at that point wanted to have a, of course, have a life with this amazing human being that um, we both felt like God was weaving us in our lives together, but there was this still unknown of like, how is this going to happen? How is this going to end? We have hopes and ideas, but like he said, unfortunately, everybody in the, all of our leaders in the justice system don't believe in justice. So how do you have faith that the Lord is at work, but also he can unfold his plan in, in whatever way he sees fit that's for the good that we might not see? You know, you're just like one step at a time. So again, I think part of our goal is we just try to live truthfully. Like we had to acknowledge our feelings. This is what we desire, but to say, let's jump into this lifelong commitment right now. Like you said, it probably wasn't the wisest. And so we didn't, and we just continued on the path of, you know, moving in love with each other, fighting for his freedom. And gosh, that was four years before we were able to actually get married. Wow. So you're, you're in the WNBA, you're playing with the Lynx, and you're watching the activism and the voice of the Lynx get louder and louder around this issue. Um, was that readily embraced? By? By the, by the WNBA, by the Lynx, like, um, because, you know, I work in this space and I'm in a lot of places where I'm like, we really need to be working on criminal justice reform. And they're like, well, you know, what about this group or what about that group? Like, there's a lot of tentativeness around it, or at least it was, especially back when you really started pushing on this. Yeah, it was not necessarily, um, a long prepared thought out plan. What happened in the summer of 20, what was it, 16, I believe. Um, a lot of death, heartbreak. Um, if you're a human being that cares about other human beings, you were devastated that summer. And so as a, a black and brown community, we are trying to be professionals, but at the same time in our backyard, <laughs> Like there's blood in the streets. So our head coach and our coaching staff, I think it actually started with them sitting us down and say, hey, we see you, we see what's happening. We're, we're heartbroken as well. And if you wanna do something, do it. And so that just kind of like, you know, when you're in the grind and you're playing and you're trying to bring your best every night, you're just in that focus, that tunnel. And one of the things I've, I've tried to, to, to speak on when I can is learning from that by saying, we're not robots, we're not um, machines, we're human beings, we're citizens, we're part of a community and we can acknowledge that. And so part of us wanting to create the messaging on the shirt, have the press conference before the game, talk about change starts with us, justice, accountability, black lives matter, was a part of just taking a moment to remind us as a people, hey, we're human beings. Let's be human and say we're hurting because other humans are hurting and other human beings are doing the hurting. 
and there's systems in place that human beings create that are doing hurting, let's do something because we can. Um, and so that was the spirit that we, that we, we took. And, you know, unfortunately when you have a certain group of people that benefit from a broken system or people who are comfortable holding and grasping their privilege, which can be any of us who have privilege or benefit from a system, but there are certain people who historically in our country, because of the way it was set up, have benefited from certain systems. That doesn't feel good when your system and your comfort is shaken. Um, and it really reveals kind of what's in your heart. Instead of reacting with empathy and compassion, you react with fear of losing power. And so, of course, we saw that come out in different ways, but we also saw, I think, overwhelming majority of thank you, thank you, thank you for saying something, thank you for seeing, thank you for caring, thank you for reminding us the most important thing is that we're human beings before performers, before all of that. Um, and so we, we just reacted in the moment trying to be the best humans we could and it ended up inspiring and, and sparking more people to do the same while also again revealing the, the negative and the bad things that, that can be in human hearts when, when, you're, when, you're, when your power and privilege is, um, your unjust power and privilege is, is, is highlighted. Mm -hmm. Was it a mutual decision um, that you two made um, when you retired to work um, more deeply in social justice work? Well, so I, I, I wish my, my journey was a little more clear. Um, again, I feel like my last 15 years of life was just like one step at a time, figure it out as you go, because no one is telling me how to do this. <laughs> and so my retirement journey was very similar. Um, I, I wrote an article, a short little article through the Players' Tribune called The Shift back in 2019 to try to articulate to the public um, my, my shift away from being a pro athlete actively to needing, needing to stop, to shift my energy, my presence, to other things that, are, that had to do with being more rooted in my family and in my community because the work that it takes emotionally, mentally um, to battle <laughs> in this criminal justice system is a lot, as well as I needed to get restored and refreshed and create more margin in my life to be present for my family and be present for Jonathan's fight and to make space for hopefully him coming home. And so every year I would try to, um, you know, knowing I'm a public figure and people care about my life and what I'm doing, I try to give, you know, um, open the door a little bit to, to show people kind of what I'm doing and, 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 and why. But obviously the fullness of what I'm doing is not really appropriate to just lay out <laughs> in the moment. So I try to give appropriate, helpful information, like our love story. I was like, it's not appropriate for us to just casually put, put this out in the world. I want this to be thoughtful and, and the timing of when we talk about our love, I don't want it to distract from his fight for freedom. I wanted all of my voice to go to his fight for freedom and then we can tell the wonderful love story later, which is what we did and I love how it unfolded. But my journey toward retirement was kind of the same. I took it year by year. I knew I wasn't ready to come back and I, and I didn't 
I didn't pl- when I stepped away. I didn't plan on coming back, but I didn't plan on necessarily not coming back. Um, but I didn't. I knew I wasn't. That wasn't the direction my my energy and presence needed to go. And so um, I tried to be as honest as I could about that without making people think one thing that wasn't true. Or so it's it wasn't super easy, but I, I did my best, and <laughs> I knew in January when um, we were ready to share our story with the world would have been a was a really helpful time to put some closure to that chapter of my life. And so I announced my retirement in this past January when we announced our book uh, release. And I feel really good about giving some closure and being able to really celebrate and uh, move on with that settled. Jonathan, uh, for you, how, how um, can you talk about the moment you knew you were coming home? The moment I knew I was coming home was when the judge issued me an evidentiary hearing. And I told Maya, I said, I'm coming home. I said, that's like lightning striking. That means he's taking my case seriously because before that I lost 11 appeals, back to back to back to back. And the majority of my dead pro bono, back to back, 11 appeals. But when Judge Daniel Green Despite what the, the, the Attorney General representing the state of Missouri was arguing, talking all that nonsense and yin yang, he said, oh, I'm going to give him an evidentiary hearing. Like, I, don't, I don't care what you're saying. I'm giving him an evidentiary. I said, That's it. I just got to wait and be patient. That's when I knew. I was just going to say, too, an evidentiary hearing, um, like he said, is like lightning striking. The judge was essentially saying, we're going to give this man an, um, give this man a chance to represent the evidence and look at his case more fairly because his original um, trial, we have proof that it was not presented fairly. And so the main reason we were able to get the evidentiary hearing is, is what's called a Brady violation. Um, there's a case, Brady versus Maryland. I'm just repeating what Jonathan has taught me. So, Kill it. <laughs> Kill it. Was, uh, yeah, tell us. Head. Teach us. Tell us. So the Brady Kill versus it. Maryland was, was where the Brady violation language comes from, which basically says at the time of a trial, the prosecution, or either side really, but mainly the prosecution, um, had evidence or information that was withheld from the defense and from the jury. Um, that would have impacted how the outcome of the, the trial happened. And so we had several Brady violations, but the main one, like Jonathan alluded to earlier, was a fingerprint that was unidentified, that was not Jonathan's, found at the scene, that pointed to another human being <laughs> that wasn't, you know, could have been and was involved. Um, Mike, can I interrupt you there? Because the, the, when, when you took it um, to the judge, the, the other judge, what did they say it was? Like it was um, when they dismissed that, when you first brought that to the court, the fingerprint? Uh, oh, well. Uh, it was called like, I can't remember the language. Initially we did, we filed a, uh, a, a petition to get DNA testing on the fingerprints. It took us about 14 minutes, 14 months to get the process done. But because it took so much time from the beginning of when the fingerprints were actually left laid down at the crime scene to when they got them tested, they were deteriorated so we couldn't get the DNA. But 
we kept a photograph. So they took a, they used a high resolution technology camera and took a picture of the, uh, of the fingerprints so they were still preserved and we could still use them for that purpose for like side by side comparison. But uh, the, the motion for DNA testing, we lost because we couldn't get DNA on it. So that was denied. Okay. I thought it was like nuisance or some word that you used in the book, but you ought to read the book because the book is very good. So you'll find out when you read it. <laughs> but yeah, like he said, when, when a judge grants you an evidentiary hearing and you have an abundance of evidence, you just know the truth is going to set you free. Like if you have people who are leading the justice system, wanting the justice to happen and the evidence, like follow the evidence. Don't hide evidence, don't distort, don't twist, don't pervert the evidence. Just look at the evidence and follow it where it leads. That's right. It sounds simple, but unfortunately it doesn't always happen. And so when we got a judge that actually has the integrity to say, no, let's look at the evidence, we were super excited to know there's a leader in the justice system that wants to actually do the right thing. And so as long as our leaders have a heart and a spirit to do the right thing and do their best to, to follow the evidence, and do it orderly, um, we had hope. But unfortunately, again, it just takes so much time. And if the state of Missouri looks at the evidence and says, oh my gosh, an innocent man, let's, let's join justice and get him out as quickly as possible, versus what happened in our case, the state of Missouri said, did everything they could to pervert, to twist, to hide, to manipulate, to delay the evidence, which is why it took so long for Jonathan to come home. Um, those are the issues that we, we, we have strong feelings against of when you have leaders in the prosecutor's office who are just trying to maintain the conviction or just get the conviction and distorting and ignoring evidence, that has to stop. And so, you know, our nonprofit Win With Justice is all about highlighting prosecutorial reform so that the spirit of these prosecutor's offices can move less from the win at all costs mentality to how is actual justice happening and how can we restore these communities more, more fully or even go back and look at um, resentencing that were too harsh or not fair or all the ways that we can do more restorative justice than just punitive, get the conviction um, and, and put those con conviction uh, notches. notches. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that's, that's when we, yeah, we, we were confident Jonathan was eventually gonna come, but again, the speed of which he was freed from the, the horrible place he was in, other leaders have to help that as well. Mm -hmm. And the nonprofit, is it national? Mm -hmm. And if people wanted to find it, where would they go? Winwithjustice.org. Okay, and then Jonathan, after um, the judge uh, gave you the hearing and said that you were gonna go home, home how long did it take for you to actually be released? Man, it took another eight, five, four, somebody. It was uh, it was March 9th. It was March 9th. They got they got overturned, and but I didn't walk out of prison until July 1st. And this is why she was talking about leaders earlier. The Attorney General decided to delay and stall, knowing that they were they weren't going to win. There were three appeals that they had access to after my case was overturned. They had 15 days to file the appeal each time. They waited to the last day, the last hour of the day, to file an appeal. That appeal got denied. The appellate court wrote a 27-page scathing opinion 
about what they did. Basically, he said, like, this is incredulous. I can't believe you're sitting there trying to put this argument in front of us. This is, this is horrible. Let this man go. That got denied. They didn't get my case overturned. Then they go to the Supreme Court. They go to the, uh, the court. They, they, they filed another retrial, or, no, a, a, a re-motion, a rehearing motion back in the Court of Appeals. They waited till the last 15th day, the last hour of the day, for like a two or three page motion, literally two or three pages. And they filed that, that got denied. Then they went to the last stage, the last stage was this, the Missouri Supreme Court. And my, my lawyers were very wise to file a motion to expedite because what they did, again, and they were trying to make it go into session because the Supreme Court would go into session after, after, Ju after June 30th and it would be on break. And I would have sat in prison until probably to till the, till the following spring, potentially. But that got denied. In 30 days, it got denied. But they waited till the last day, the last hour of the day. They did it the whole way through. It was just, it was just horrible. And they, can, they continued to perpetuate the same lie. Like they, they, at the evidentiary hearing, they used this document. We don't know where they got it from. But the judge knew about it. Everybody in the courtroom knew. And they tried to say it was in my box. And what was crazy about it, the, the document that they had, it did, had no impact on my case. But they were trying to stretch it and make it say, oh, no, he had this evidence. Let's kill this case. And the judge like, no, no. The Court of Appeals said, that's false. We're not going for that. But I walked out July 1st after the prosecutor said, let, me, let him free. July 1st. So how hard was the transition? Was it hard at all or was it? Um, it, it could have it been harder. I will, I will say that because I, 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 like I'm still in contact with guys and guys that are getting out and I communicate with them, encourage them, send them, send them information and resources now. But, you know, I had PTSD. Like I survived prison riots. I had been stabbed in there. You know, I, I had fought multiple guys and just, just COs coming in, just tearing up stuff and just dogging me out, harassing me, like year after year after year after year of that. And I found myself asking for permission to do everything. It's like, can I do this? I would go up in the grocery store and I'm like, hey, um, how much is this? Can, can, I, can I grab that off the shelf? And they're like, yeah, you can grab that off the shelf. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and I just, I had this moment, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm, I'm free. Yeah. I, I, I was having nightmares where I was waking up, I was back in prison, and then I wake up in the middle of the night with a feeling on mine, and I wake her up, because you know, she love her sleep, you know. You know, she's like, but she'd be like, you okay, baby, you okay? But I reach out and like, okay, okay, I'm not in prison, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home. Um, I got, I, I, I would find myself, you know, kind of just leery of, of crowds, like people that I didn't know, finding find, find myself, putting myself, moving my back up against the wall, you know, but then I got to the point where I had to challenge that and where I would, I would force myself to go sit in crowds and go talk to people and then sit in a way where I wasn't worried about who was behind me. Like I had to challenge myself and put, I went to counseling, I went to counseling for, I did EMDR, and, and all that helped. Like, I, I really firmly believe like, when, when people get out of prison, whether you're guilty or not, like, you need to do whatever you can, man, to get yourself healthy, mentally, physically, whatever. Because I mean, if you, gotta, you, gotta, you fall and bust your knee up, you're going to go to the doctor. But if you go through something, you're not feeling right in your brain, why won't you go get some help from a mental health 
for sister. Like it, it, it doesn't make you any less. Matter of fact, for me, I think it's a badge of honor, man, to take care of your body and your mind. Um, uh, but as far as like you know, uh, financially, like I, I started the dog training business. I'm a professional dog trainer. I just one of the things I picked up while I was inside. I started to create opportunities. I became an advisor for a Superior Court judge down in Cobb County in Atlanta. Um, uh, my wife and I, you know, we went on, we've done some, some, some business adventures and I've been able to contribute and add, add to our, you know, our financial pot, which is good as a man. You don't want to come home and not being able to contribute to, to home. Uh, and so with time, prison became far away and freedom became the reality where when I was in prison, being free felt so far away. You know, and, and, and prison was like right, right in the reality. When I left, y'all gonna laugh at me. Don't laugh too hard, don't, don't laugh too hard. Y'all remember them two-way beepers? That's what they had, that's what I had when I left the streets. When I got out, she handed me this iPhone 7. I'm like, what am I gonna do with this? She said, you gotta open it, like put your finger on it. And I, I put my finger on it, open. I still couldn't call nobody. If I was in an emergency, I'd be like, I had to throw it. So I'm like, get in. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, the whole world passed. Right, yeah. right, and I'm, I'm, you know, my, you know my, my, my best friends have kids that are grown now, and I just, I just, I just aware, I was aware of how much time that I had lost and had, had passed, but again, I had to, I make this choice every day. I choose to be thankful for what I have now. I choose to live in the moment and be grateful for every day. Because I have found from trial and error and experience, if you're always thinking about what you miss and what you lost and what you ain't got and comparing yourself to other situations and just aggravating, you know, aggravating yourself up and getting yourself wound out about that, if you can't enjoy the moment right now, you might have the best ice cream in your hand but you won't enjoy it because you, you're worried about what you ain't got or what you don't have anymore. And that's how I live life. That's why I'm able to smile and laugh and be positive and be grateful. I couldn't enjoy my life if I was worried about all those years I missed. And I, 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 how foolish would that be? You know? I feel that. Before we wrap, last question. Can you talk about this little human you made? <laughs> I got my phone up there. <laughs> I know. Tell us how the whole human that y'all made. Smart little dude. Is he smart? I know he's got to be with y'all. He has a dimple right here. Okay. One dimple. And he's got his daddy's lips. Okay, lips. My skin complexion. Okay. You know, my charm. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have a little boy. His name is JJ, Jonathan Jr. Um, he's 16 months, and it is... He's our life. Like, it's just, it's insane when, yeah. you know, if you're a parent, um, before I became a parent, you know, you hear your, your mom or your people talking about, you know, you don't, you don't get it. You know, once you have a kid, you know, you just, just the love that you have. And it's like, oh, that's nice. That's a cute idea. And then you have a child and you're like, whoa, mm -hmm. how can you love something so much? And just all your priorities change. And you're like, what did we do before, JJ? Like, what do we do on Friday nights? Because now we just go to sleep, you know? <laughs> like, Real talk. He's, um, he's our little everything. I think one of the, the sweetest um, parts of my life now is watching Jonathan be a father. Um, he is the best, the best dad. He, 
has loved, loved and longed to be a dad for so long. And part of what he had to go through and the heartache of being in, in the visiting room, um, when, you're, when you're on a visit, the guys who get visits are guys who have good behavior and have earned the right to have visitors. And so um, when you're on those visits, there is a measure of like, you don't feel like super scared because most of you know those guys are there because of good behavior and so they have kids and, and family members and Jonathan would see other people's kids and like would just long to be have a family and interact with kids he loves kids and so um, he thought he'd never have kids he had just kind of given up on that dream and had accepted like that's just not something I'll get to enjoy and so for him to come home and then the Lord to be gracious enough to allow, allow us to conceive and have a, a healthy baby boy is just like watching them play together, like it's my screensaver. It's it's just <laughs> everything, and so we um, we take being parents very very seriously in that we we like to be present. We like to um, teach him things and do things with him. And we're in a season of life where we can, you know, the the grind that his grandmother did, the grind that my mom did to be single parents trying to raise kids. Now we get to in our generation have the blessing of we get to. We get to, we've, we've done a lot of grinding, but it's led to the fruit of a season of life where we can be present yeah. and home and then be a part of our community and help other kids and, 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 and just try to be a place of healing. That's where we're at in our life of trying to build our home. We have some property in Metro Atlanta that our dream property and it's just super sweet to cultivate that. Watch him just get on the land and do things and run his dog business and watch JJ run around and scrape his knees and do all the things and just yeah it's it's so sweet and it's just made this side of the story so much more worth it and beautiful and redemptive i mean he is a jj's a picture of redemption and mm. we yes, are just so excited to watch him grow and see what he becomes yeah i think you just named the podcast episode <laughs> picture of redemption oh yeah, or the movie, exactly. Thank you so much, Maya Moore Irons and Jonathan Irons. Your story of, of so much, it's so layered, it's so beautiful. All of the things that I made assumptions about, all the things I was curious about, all of the, the work on justice. Um, I just thank you so much for just opening my eyes um, for, for just being a blessing and a gift to our community, um, to be an example of, of making sure that, um, that we see every person everywhere um, and that we just think through where we're getting limited, yep. right? And that if everyone does their role and they do it through love and faith and an ability that everyone deserves respect, we can go much further. So thank you for being on Conversations with Shonda. We were live at the YWCA. Thank you to Shelly Carthen-Watson, Devana Rucker, and the YWCA team, to Gina V. Works, to Supak, my co-producer, and Jamie. Thank you, and that is a wrap. Thank you for joining us featuring Maya Moore Irons and Jonathan Irons. Their book, Love and Justice, is available now. To learn more about Win with Justice, their nonprofit organization, visit winwithjustice.org. Stay tuned for more empowering episodes on Conversations with Shonda.